The ultimate hope of the gospel is our belief in the return of Christ to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. But one of the ways that we express our belief that that is true is we seek to create glimpses of that world to come here today. Glimpses of the world as God intended it to be. The Bible often refers to as shalom. Pockets of mutual flourishing. It's true, we can't change the world. It all gets kind of overwhelming. But we absolutely can create pockets of flourishing that give people just a glimpse of the world as God intended it to be. How, how do we do that? As a church, how do we do that? Well, that's what we want to talk about. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Acts chapter 6. Last we saw our story, the 12 apostles had been arrested, they had been threatened, they had been flogged, and they had been released. The threat was that they were not to preach and teach Jesus is the Christ or else. The first thing they did after they were released, according to the text, is they continued to preach and teach that Jesus is the Christ and the church continued to explode. That's where we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now it's worth noticing in verse one is the first time that Luke has used the term disciples. It's a term we're familiar with. We see it a lot in the gospels, but typically referring to the 12 or maybe the 70. But Luke's gonna introduce the term disciples to describe the congregation. It's important to understand that the Great Commission was not go make converts. It was go make disciples. People that are learning and growing and being conformed to the image of Christ. Why that's so important with our discussion this morning is you can never create pockets of flourishing with converts, never. What will be required to do something that challenging is with disciples, people that are learning, growing, being conformed to the image of Christ. So it's hard to figure out exactly the size of the church at this point in Acts. We heard the number 3,000 early in Acts, then we heard the number 5,000. We know 5,000 was just counting men. So at that point, it's 7,500 up to 10,000. Most scholars believe at this point it's somewhere in the neighborhood of between 10,000 and 20,000 people and growing. Well, anytime there's that many people gathered together, there's going to be some problems. And there was a problem. 
The problem had to do with two groups of people, the Hellenistic Jews and the native Jews. The Hellenistic Jews would have been Jews who were dispersed out into the Roman Empire, who would have grown up primarily in Greek cultures, would have spoken the Greek language. Their daily lives would have reflected the Greek culture in which they grew up in. But it was common that they would move back to Jerusalem uh, in their old age so that when they died, they would be buried outside of Jerusalem. So the husband dies and you have a significant number of widows. The other group, the native Jews, would be those who were born and raised in Judea, even up into Galilee. Their primary language was Aramaic, which is a Semitic language like Hebrew. They would have organized their lives around the religion of the Jewish people, so the feasts, the festivals, and the temple worship. So both groups Jewish, but very different. And they didn't like each other at all. There is a tremendous amount of prejudice between the two groups. So the Hellenistic Jews are concerned that their widows are being overlooked. In the distribution of, and it could be food or it could be money. Typically, when the term table is used, it's a reference to money. Whatever it is, the, whatever these widows needed in order to survive, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked. So this is interesting to stop and think about. The idea of prejudice is not new. Ever since the beginning of time, when sin entered into the picture, there has been prejudice. When we hear that in the 21st century, we automatically think skin color. And sometimes that is the case. But it's incredibly reductionistic to think this is just an issue of skin color. Prejudice has existed for thousands of years and it's involved far more than just the color of a person's skin. In this case, they were both Jewish groups, but from very different backgrounds and cultures and they really did not like each other. It would be wonderful if when people trusted Christ as Savior and entered into the life of the church, all of our baggage, all of our addictions, all of our prejudices just magically went away. And we were just wonderful people. It would be great if it worked that way. But it doesn't. It's incredibly naive to think it works that way. I don't know why people constantly have to criticize churches for all these kind of struggles that happen within churches. We're bringing together people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of stories to try to come together to be a very unique family of people. 
And we bring our baggage and we bring our prejudices and we bring our struggles and we have to work our way through those things. But what's dramatically different is because we are people changed through the resurrected power of Jesus, we have become new creations in Christ. Because of our new worldview, our belief system does make it possible to face these prejudices, to work our way through them, and to actually create pockets of flourishing that gives the world a glimpse of the world as God intended it to be. Something that will never happen in a secular culture without God. So this is part of our witness. We really can pull off something extraordinary because of the power of Christ in us. But it's not easy. It takes effort. That will never happen with converts. It will require disciples. When we think of this idea of prejudice and understanding this goes far beyond skin color. Over many years, we've worked really hard to help with a Spanish-speaking church. And we've had ups and downs with that. One of the real challenges is even though there are lots of people in our community whose first language is Spanish, they don't all like each other. There are cultural differences. There are significant prejudices that are very difficult to work through. We've also been significantly involved with Suleiman and the Sudanese church in town. There's lots of Sudanese in our community, and they all have the same color of skin, but they're very tribal. They don't like each other, and they don't get along, and they have significant prejudices, and it makes it very difficult to try to work those things through to be the church. We're gathering people together from many different backgrounds and cultures. People that are old, people that are young, male, female, people that are rural, people that are urban, people that are Republicans, people that are Democrats. This is not easy. And it requires growing, maturing believers to understand how we can come together and flourish as the people of God. So in this case, they're both Jewish, but very different in their backgrounds. So something must be done. Verse 2. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, one thing you have to notice, you see it at the end of chapter five, you see it in verse two, you see it in verse four, and you'll see it throughout the book of Acts. 
is the priority of the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. It is virtually impossible to make disciples without taking seriously the word of God. The reason I underscore that is because I do think the church in America more and more is marginalizing the importance of the word of God. You can't make disciples without taking seriously the word of God. So the apostles said, you know, this is our calling. They had been taught by Jesus and their calling was to teach and make disciples. Maybe initially you might think it sounded kind of dismissive. Like, hey, don't bother us. We're teaching the word. I don't want to mess with that. But as you read through the text, you find out that is certainly not the case. They have a plan to address the issue. And when you look at the qualifications for these men appointed to resolve the issue, you realize the bar was set really high and it was taken very seriously. So the plan is that the congregation made up of both native Jews and Hellenistic Jews, they together will choose seven men in order to address the issue. So here's the three qualifications. Number one, it must be someone that is above reproach. We would say someone that everyone would respect and trust. Now stop and think about this. You're talking about these two groups that don't really like each other. And you're supposed to find someone that both sides will say, yes. That's someone I'll listen to. That's someone I respect. That's someone I'll trust. Number two, someone full of the Spirit. Now remember, we've talked about this. The moment you trust Jesus as Savior, you receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. To be full of the Spirit is a reference to being under the control of the Spirit. To be surrendered to the Spirit. Rather than controlled by my flesh, I'm surrendered to the Spirit. Maybe think of it as someone who exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Thirdly, was someone who is full of wisdom. Against full meaning controlled by. Wisdom, I like skillful. Someone who clearly is skillful at living life. So both sides have to agree. This is someone we respect and trust. Someone that seems to be surrendered to the spirit. Someone that really seems to be skilled at life. That is setting the bar very high. Now we have lots of people like that in our congregation. So here's my question this morning. Does that describe you? We have lots of people like that in our congregation, but here's my question. Does that 
describe you. I'll guarantee you it doesn't describe a convert. It describes a disciple. It takes a lot of learning and growth and discipling to be that kind of a person. So there's lots of different ways that we could try to figure this out. But just for fun this morning, it's going to be really fun. Here's how we'll do it. I'm going to have you come up here and stand next to me. And then we're going to take everything that you've posted on social media the last year. And we're going to put it on that screen. And we're going to read it together. And what we need at the end of that is for the congregation to say, now that's someone I can respect and trust. Not just your little group that agrees with you. The congregation. That's someone who is clearly surrendered to the Spirit of God. That's someone who is clearly skilled at life. So the bar was set really high. It takes a disciple to be that kind of person conformed to the image of Christ. So that's the plan. So they present the plan. The congregation agrees. Verse 5. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these were brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So seven men, Stephen, who will be the star of the story next week, and the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts. Philip will also be a major player in a story in the book of Acts. The other five we really know nothing about. But they are presented, the apostles approve, in essence, commissioning them for service. This is a significant problem. It's your job to figure it out and to resolve the problem. Before we read verse 7 and close the text, I want to talk about this for a little bit. What is the real point and what makes it relevant to us today? It's important to understand that the mission is not just converts. The mission is to make disciples. Some people look at this text and think this is the beginning of the office of deacons. That's possible. I think that's highly unlikely. One of the reasons I don't like that interpretation is because immediately in our minds we're going to a structure and we kind of have this rigid structure then we imposed on the text. I don't think that's what's happening here. 
There are some people that feel like the New Testament church was just organic and not organized and winging it as, as the days went by. But remember in chapter four, we were told that people were bringing their stuff, selling their stuff, having in common in order to meet the needs. And the text actually says there was not a needy person among them. At that point, you're talking roughly 10,000 people with no technology for communication. Can you imagine how sophisticated the organization had to be to accomplish that? They were highly organized. And that's true throughout the book of Acts. But the struggle, uh, the structure was ever morphing and changing. One of the huge mistakes churches make is they fall in love with their structure. As if they found the perfect structure forever. But structures have to continually change to serve the needs of the people. Over the years that I've been here, we've blown up and restructured ourselves multiple times. One of the interesting opportunities this last year because of COVID and so much that had to be shut down, it made the prime opportunity to look internally and make major restructures with the staff. Our directional team and our staff have done a great job of a significant overhaul and restructuring of who we are and how we organize ourselves as a staff in order to position ourselves to be more effective in the future. We'll unveil more of what that means in August. But it's really important to understand, this isn't new. We've done it multiple times. It's a necessary thing to continue to be effective. That's what's happening here in the book of Acts. They're just continually restructuring themselves in order to meet the needs of the people. It's really important to understand in the New Testament church, it is not a two-caste system. There's not a clergy caste and the people. But rather, we are all equally believer priests. We all have equal access to God. There's nobody more than, there's nobody less than. We just all have a role to play. This is why I refuse to use the term volunteer when talking about people that serve in the church. Whether you get paid or not is completely irrelevant. Every believer has a high and holy calling. And nobody's calling is more than or less than. Pastors and missionaries do not have a higher or more holy calling than anyone else in the church. We all have a calling on our lives. To me, the term volunteer 
implies this is optional. I don't believe it is. It's not optional. You're either obedient or you're disobedient. You cannot in one breath say your calling is high and holy and in the next breath say, but it's optional. It's either one or the other. I also believe everyone has both what I would call a general call and a more specific call to the local church. So what exactly does that mean? Well, let me explain it this way. I think there is a general call, which is about our responsibility out there. And I think we have a specific call, which is about our responsibility in here. So let me define my terms. When I say in here, I'm not limiting that to the auditorium. I'm not limiting that to the building. I'm not limiting that to the campus. I'm including everything that falls under the umbrella of the organization of Lincoln Brian. Our life groups are all over town in people's homes. We're involved in the community in all kinds of significant ways, but it's under the organizational umbrella of Lincoln Brian, and it's all part of our discipling ministry. When I say out there, I'm referring to everything then beyond that. Your workplace, your neighborhood, your school, your hobbies, everywhere you go and represent Christ. Now, some people would say, well, I think my work is my ministry. To which I would agree with you 100%. I am totally on board with that. It is critically important to understand, yes, that's true. All of us penetrate out into the workplace, into your school, into your neighborhood, where you do hobbies, as the church to be the light of Jesus. That's critically important. But you have to understand that's true of everyone. That's not just unique to you. It's true of every believer. But if every believer decided that's my only ministry, we would have no local church. And we would have no capacity to disciple converts. You will never be effective out there unless you are discipled in here. And that requires a more specific calling to be a part of your local church. The most common imagery in the New Testament is that of a body. So you're a finger, you're a hand, you're a toe, you're a kneecap. All of us coming together to make up the body of Christ in order to disciple converts 
to be more effective out there. You cannot create pockets of flourishing with converts. It requires disciples who are growing and being conformed into the image of Christ. Over the years, we have had so many faithful people who have served Lincoln Brian in so many ways. And again, this last year, that has been true again. If you haven't figured it out, one of my favorite things to do is to brag on the people of Lincoln Brian. I love this place and I love the people of Brian. Amazing people. But there's others of you that haven't been involved. And I would just like to invite you to be involved, to do your part in helping to disciple converts, to become more effective followers of Jesus. One of the most common answers when people are asked to serve, what do you think it is? I'm too busy. I'm too busy. One of the problems with that is it's just become dismissive. It's like it ends the conversation. I'm too busy. Don't talk to me. Well, here's another way to answer the question. It's not a value. Everybody's busy. So let's at least be more authentic. Let's be more honest. Everybody has time for what they think is important. So instead of saying, I'm too busy, just say it. It's not a value. It doesn't really matter to me. Now, I realize you can't be involved in everything. Nobody could be. But is it or is it not a value to be a part of your local church and making your contribution to the discipling of converts to be conformed to the image of Christ? One of the things when I hear people say they're too busy is I find myself getting very defensive for the people that serve. Because I think what you just said is, I'm way too busy, but they're not. They have all kinds of spare time, and that's why they do it. I'm too busy. Hey, guess what? Those people who serve, they're really busy too. They're just as busy as you are. They have just as many things to do as you do. They're just as tired as you are. But they have a value. And the value is they want to do their part in discipling converts to be the church. Sometimes when people introduce me, they introduce me as the minister. Technically, that's not correct. According to the New Testament, I'm the equipper. You're the minister. Paul says, my job is to equip the saints to do the work 
of the ministry. Equipper, minister. Feel free to put that on your business card. <laughs> when we gather on a weekend, we gather to worship as the people of God. We gather to be equipped to understand and believe the word of God in order to grow and change and be more conformed to the image of Christ in order to create these pockets of flourishing. Probably most people have no idea how many people it takes just to pull off the weekend services. It's a lot. But we also need to disciple our children. We also need to disciple our youth. We also need to disciple our college students. I don't think there's probably ever been a time in my lifetime where this is more critical. The culture's getting darker and darker and more and more confusing and more and more dangerous. And we have to take seriously our call to disciple these children to disciple these teenagers and college students, they need to be grounded disciples or they're not going to make it. And all that takes people. It takes a lot of people. But it's not just that. We have young adults. We have middle-aged adults. We have senior adults. We have people going through terminal illnesses. We have people dealing with the loss of somebody they deeply loved. We have people dealing with addictions. We have people dealing with mental health issues. We have people in financial crisis. We have widows that need attention. Just like the first century church, there's so many places to serve that all come together and are all a part of discipleship that helps us heal, that helps us learn, that helps us grow, that helps us become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, to rightly represent Christ out there. We don't organize ourselves just to be organized. We don't organize ourselves to control people. We organize ourselves to make disciples to create flourishing. Verse seven, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. They continued to organize and restructure to continue to grow, to be faithful, to accomplish the mission. I would invite you to join us. You can get on the website, see opportunities to serve. You can ask someone at the connecting point on the 100 level. But join us as we organize ourselves to be the church, to disciple believers, to rightly represent Jesus in our community and around the world. Our Father, we're thankful for the truth of your word. Lord, you have not been dismissive of us. You've called us to be part of something that will matter forever. Lord, may we take that call seriously and do our part 
change the world. In Jesus' name, amen.